Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the Brian Dainsburg Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Dainsburg, lead pastor of Alliance Bible Church, located in beautiful southeast Wisconsin. I have addressed somewhat thoroughly in previous podcasts the reigning worldview that currently governs conversations about race in the United States and beyond uh, today. If you've not listened to those, it'd probably be a good idea to do that. I believe they were the first two episodes of this podcast. One of them is on the history of critical theory. Um, Just a reminder, critical theory is kind of the broad umbrella under which you have subcategories. Critical race theory is one of them, but there are a bunch of others. And then uh, a podcast on the doctrine of critical theory. That is, what is it? What does it believe? And then it in that same podcast we do a biblical critique of um, of the main tenets of critical theory. And so those episodes provide a backdrop to this one that will. Uh, should help you make sense of of these things. Within the critical theory ecosystem is the notion of ancestral guilt and a Christianized <laughs> version of this called corporate repentance. They kind of go hand in hand. This is this has kind of been picked up by, by some Christians and churches, and so it's, there's a sort of Christianization of this of this idea. Now to frame this topic with a question, it's the question is simply this, do whites need corporate repentance for historical racial sins? Do whites need corporate repentance for historical racial sins? The abhorrent treatment of African Americans in this country uh, especially during the 18th, 19th, and even the first part of the 20th century, ought those who were not living during that time and or had no part in it need to repent of the sins committed by the primary characters involved at the time? That's the, that's the question. Now, some Christians will say, yes, they do. And those who who argue for this uh, generally appeal to three main arguments. First, they spot passages of scripture that they contend communicate repentance for ancestral sin. And they see it in passages such as Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 1, Daniel 9. We'll return to some of these in a moment, but The argument goes that there is biblical precedent for collective sin and collective repentance. Therefore, this practice ought to be fostered, even if we are individually or personally innocent of these sins. So some particular white person may not be guilty of slavery, but they still bear the guilt of historic whites' participation in defense of or ambivalence towards slavery. So that's one argument that uh, you'll hear some Christians um, advance in favor of ancestral guilt and corporate repentance. There's another one. Some Christians will argue that because we all bear the stain of Adam's original sin, 
It is therefore possible for us to be counted guilty as a result of sins that we did not personally commit. Uh, Conversely, we can see the doctrine of corporate solidarity and the fact that Christ's righteousness can be imputed to us, despite the fact that we are not personally righteous and did not personally attain that righteousness. Now, I'm not going to go into this one uh, in detail. Suffice it to say that, that Adam stands alone as a unique human being, and obviously Jesus stands alone as a unique God-man. There's a federal headship is what theologians will, will talk about that um, creates a unique relationship all human beings have to Adam and the redeemed have to Jesus that does not retain a, a uniqueness in relationship to any other. Um, again, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but but it's, it's just not right to construe our relationship to Adam and Christian's relationship to Jesus um, as then being our relationship to every other um, human connection, generation, people group, whatever. But some will advance that. A third argument they'll make is that some Christians argue that because whites receive unearned advantages from historic injustices, they are morally guilty today and are complicit in racism, even if they aren't actively racist themselves. And this guilt and complicity then demand confession and repentance. So these are the three main arguments that you'll hear some Christians advance in support of this idea of ancestral guilt and corporate repentance. Now, I want to give credit here to Neil Shenvey. Neil Shenvey has been writing extensively on this topic for years and has been helpful to me as I process these issues. And uh, we have his website in the down the show notes um, section of this episode. Now, there are some reasons this idea of ancestral guilt and corporate repentance doesn't pass the sniff test. Uh, I'm going to talk about five reasons ancestral guilt, corporate repentance just doesn't pass the sniff test. First, we have to deal with passages of scripture that convey the non-transferability of guilt. There are passages of scripture that convey the non-transferability of guilt. I want to read Ezekiel 18 at length. Uh, So you get a feel for this. Now suppose, this is Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 14. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer 
for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Well, this gets about as airtight as one can get. I mean, the passage is talking about a biological relationship of father-son. If a son does not commit the sins of his biological father, he is innocent of his father's sins. So if sin can't be transferred from parent to child, nor child to parent, how much less from unspecified strangers whom we've never met? Same idea is put forth in Deuteronomy 24, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Jeremiah 31 says the same thing. So there is a non-transferability of guilt. It's a helpful reminder, and, and this might be something that we, uh, we look at later, but it's a helpful reminder that according to Scripture, it's people who sin, systems don't. People sin, systems don't. So my first response to a Christian arguing for ancestral guilt is to point to these passages that clearly convey the non-transferability of guilt. Second, take a closer look at the corporate repentance or ancestral guilt passages. Take a closer look at it. A professor of mine once memorably stated, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> In other words, when coming to some understanding of Scripture, pay close attention to the context. This is where I think many Christians have just become a little sloppy in their reading of Scripture. It's worth reading this at length. It's a long passage, but it's worth it. Um, This is from Ezra. This is one of the passages that they're contending is arguing for, in favor of, ancestral guilt and um, corporate repentance. Uh, Book of Ezra. Chapter 9, O my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say to this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant or any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Here's the point. Ezra is not talking about a previous generation's sin. He's talking about current and ongoing sins he and the rest of Israel have been actively committing. He says, from the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. The parallel passage in Nehemiah, which is recording the same stuff. Nehemiah and Ezra were were two different roles at the same time. Nehemiah says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. And this sort of thing happens in Daniel as well. So it's important to note that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel are confessing their own sins along with acknowledging the sins of those they are representing. Now, this exactly is a, really is a great example of corporate repentance, but not for sins someone else committed. Repentance for sin they committed. So when you combine taking a closer look at these passages with passages like Ezekiel 18, And Deuteronomy 24, Jeremiah 31, the case for ancestral guilt becomes extraordinarily flimsy. Let me mention another pushback on this idea of ancestral guilt. There are logical fallacies as it is proposed today. It, um, this argument in favor of ancestral guilt, corporate repentance cracks under the the scrutiny of logic. So the line of thought goes like this, by virtue of being white, whites today bear moral responsibility for the oppression and injustice of white people in previous generations. So if the oppression and injustice of one group over and against another creates moral culpability in the generations that follow, then we should hold that to be true for all descendants of oppressors. This is where the average American's knowledge of slavery is myopic. So let's play, did you know? Did you know at least one million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates from the years 1500 to 1800? Over a 300 year span, there were a million Europeans who were slaves of Africans. The Europeans who were enslaved in North Africa Africa were despised and abused because they were Christian in a Muslim region of the world where they were called Christian dogs. Did you know that? Did you know Europeans enslaved other Europeans? Did you know that Asians enslaved other Asians? That Africans enslaved other Africans and the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere? Did you know that? Did you know that even at the peak of the Atlantic slave trade, Africans retained more slaves for themselves than they sent to the Western Hemisphere? Did you know that there were also slave plantations in East Africa and on the island of Zanzibar and some African and Asian slave owners used their slaves as human sacrifices in religious ceremonies? Did you know Arabs were the leading slave raiders in East Africa? ranging over an area larger than all of Europe, 
total number of slaves exported from East Africa during the 19th century has been estimated to be at least 2 million? Did you know this? So, if an African-American living in the U.S. in the 21st century is a descendant of a slave owner, ought they to be repenting for the sin of their ancestor? The logical fallacies don't end there. Oppression and injustice are sins, for sure, and those people who do commit them ought to repent, but they are not the only sins. So why would we restrict ancestral guilt to just those particular sins? There are other sins. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, idolatry. All these things are also sins. Yet what demographic group is free from such sins, either historically or today? So would we want to say an African-American brother in Christ is guilty of the sin of idolatry because he is a descendant of an African tribe that practiced animism? Would we want to say that? Would we want to say a seventh generation Christian family from India bears the corporate guilt for the caste system of their ancestors? So if the logic is pure, everyone has ancestral guilt, not just white people. Fourth, being part of a dominant culture does not equal guilt. Being part of a dominant culture does not equal guilt. Now, to summarize where we've been so far, when we have not individually and personally committed the sins of our fathers or those with whom we share the same group space, God has determined we do not bear the guilt of those people. Individuals are not guilty by association. Individuals are not guilty simply by being members of a group of people who may be considered the quote-unquote dominant culture. Where are you getting that? Well, as an example, consider what a denial of that claim would entail for Jesus' sinlessness, since he was part of many groups, many of them dominant cultural groups. Males, as an example. And even Jews, even though they were under the, the uh, rule of, of Roman authority, there was still a Jewish authority that many Gentiles did not feel a part of. Would we want to claim that Jesus was guilty of the group's sin, even though he was individually sinless? Jesus himself was a man living in a highly patriarchal context where he experienced many unearned advantages due to his gender. Are we going to charge him with sin by association? The experience of privilege, even privilege which results from tragic injustice in generations past, cannot entail guilt or the need for repentance. Being part of a dominant culture does not equal guilt. And fifth, and finally, We've got to understand the biblical nature of repentance when we're calling for these things. In the Bible, repentance is individualistic and vertical. The scriptures teach, I repent for sins I have committed. I can't repent for someone else's sins. There is no such biblical category as repentance by proxy. I mean, that would be great if it were true. I have a lost neighbor I would love to repent for, but it doesn't work that way. I can't repent on behalf of someone else 
and someone else can't repent on my behalf. That's the first thing we've got to get straight with when we're talking about repentance. Second, and very simply, repentance is prayer before God, not some general feeling of remorse. Repentance is prayer. It's prayer before God. Repentance isn't done for public display. Repentance is between you and God, between me and God. Though there are examples of revival where there's a group of people individually repenting, it's still prayer before God, individually before God. Now, as a rule of thumb, lost people don't repent unless the repentance they're doing is the one that Jesus calls us to in Mark 1, of turning to him, of confessing sin, of believing he is the way, the truth, and the life. That is the first time a lost person repents. As a rule of thumb, lost people don't repent unless that's the repenting they're doing. Now, for all these reasons, we should reject the claim that whites bear corporate guilt for the sins of their ancestors and that they need to enact corporate repentance for these sins. And I should go farther. And, and what this is one of the things that gets me fired up about this is to charge someone with sin they are not guilty of is slander. To charge someone with sin they are not guilty of is slander. And I am zealous to defend people against that injustice. Certainly we can grieve over these sins. We can repudiate these transgressions. We can pursue healing from God for those who have been directly injured. But we should do so without stating or implying an individual is guilty of and needs to repent for sins they did not commit. I'll leave you with this reminder from Ezekiel 18. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. What is God's verdict? He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next time.